Hello, I'm Alison Creel, founder of Above and Beyond Education, an online portal where every educator is celebrated for the amazing work that they do each and every day. It's a space where you can share what's going really well, celebrate, collaborate and support and so much more. Flying High is the official podcast for Above and Beyond Education, and each week we'll hear from one of our members who share the highlights of what's going well for them in their work in education. Our guest this week is Sheila Melvin, who works independently in education. And we met quite recently. Um, I went to the um, Tiny Voices book launch and Sheila's one of the authors and we had a bit of conversation and she said she'd like to be one of the uh, Flying High podcast guests and I was so flattered. So Sheila, very nice to see you again. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, lovely to chat. Yeah. Um, So uh, what we're going to be doing is to talk a little bit about your career, which is, again, non-conventional. I've yet to find a conventional path. And I think that's what's the nicest thing about education is that we've all come to it in so many different ways. And um, and that makes it truly exciting. And I think we've got so much to learn from each other. And yours is definitely a different story to anybody else who's been on the Flying pod, uh, Flying High podcast. Um, so please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your education journey. Okay. So I started off as a nurse and then a health visitor. Um, and I... I suppose I quite quickly, after practicing in both of those, I got into education, further education, uh, working with students who were um, sort of doing access to education courses or indeed HNDs and things like that. And one of the things, uh, I'll finish this and come back to that. Um, and then after that, I went to train, uh, did my PGC, went to work in schools, very quickly specialised in SEMH type provisions, uh, just found myself, which I had in college, attracted to those sort of students who clearly had kind of issues, weren't comfortable in their skin and that sort of thing. Um, loved that work and then um, finished, I suppose, my teaching by being head of a very small school for children who were all in care. And uh, from then I went, I moved into local authorities working first in inclusion, which is strangely all about exclusion, and then into uh, being head of the, the virtual school for children and care, which I did in about five different local authorities, very much, you know, support, working with schools, supporting the education of, of some of our most vulnerable um, sort of students, really, and did that for quite a long time and then started within that role doing bits of training and um, wrote my first book, Overcoming Barriers to Learning, which I think, because I, I think a lot of schools want to support mm-hmm. vulnerable students. They're just not quite sure how to do it. And I think haven't always understood the differences that they have, um, that those students carry with them, if you like. Um, so one of my big things is always, which was the chapter I wrote for Toria, about, um, you know, understanding the impact of things like trauma and attachment. Um, now I mostly do training, but just to go back to what I said, when I was in that further education college, one of the things that struck me was there was a lady who was 50, which seemed very old at the time. It's amazing how uh, such a relative <laughs> thing, age, isn't it? And she was busy getting her HND, which is quite an up there qualification. And she said, I always, um, I wish my maths teacher was here to see me. And I said, oh, why? And she said, because he always told me I'd amount to nothing. And I guess that is what behind what's behind the book that I'm, wow. you know, we'll talk about today called Make It Magnificent, because that mindset was still in her head. You will never amount to anything. 
And I think I just feel very aware that we have to be so careful when we're working with anybody, but particularly vulnerable young people. Um, what we say, they will just be soaking it up, you know, and it's, um, they are, words are powerful. Absolutely. Uh, words matter, don't they? They do. They do. Um, one of the, when I uh, do keynotes and things like that, one of the things I always talk to people about is to be very careful about the voices we carry in our head mm-hmm. um, and to maybe draw on the five voices that really matter, that really uplift lift us. Because yes. it's so easy to carry the voice of the teacher who told you that you were failing, that you were nothing, or, you know, uh, that it, it sort of feeds into our imposter syndrome. Absolutely right. And I think, you know, it can be teachers, it can be parents, it can be siblings, it can be, you know, all sorts of people you've worked at, met and worked with, all of those, you know, and, and that's very much what I talk about in my my book, Make It Magnificent, uh, which is all about mindset, because I think we, all of us have those running in the background, don't we? You know, whether it's telling you you don't deserve to be happy in your work or you'll never make a lot of money or how can you possibly do this job? You know, what have you got to offer to others? Any of those things, which is very much what I think sort of hinders lots and lots of people living the life that they want, living the life that could be as full and as satisfying as they'd like it to be, really. Yeah. So you worked with the looked after children. um, And I know that over the, well, basically, since we've seen a reducing budgets in schools, the exclusion rate is really excluded by, has, has increased by 61%, which is a huge leap. And I know that looked after children are one of the groups of children who have a very high exclusion rate. So what's your top tip to schools in terms of what they can do to address this? Well, I think um, this is one of the things I very much uh, say. I think every adult, whether you are a teacher or a support worker or, or even, frankly, if you were a kid in the canteen, I think every adult within settings, schools and settings, need to have some understanding of the impact of trauma attachment on the way that people behave. Now, obviously, that will affect a much greater group than those that are looked after. But of, and of course, looked after children now have a degree of protection by the virtual schools. Often, you know, there will be somebody fighting their corner uh, if there's a threat of exclusion, which of course some of the other vulnerable children who haven't quite tipped over into that don't have in the same way, although the remit of the virtual school has has changed a little bit. But I think I think when people understand that not every student is consciously choosing how they behave, that changes the whole way we can react to them. You know, sometimes they are being driven by uh, fear and it's a it's quite an irrational fear but if they don't feel safe for any reason in the same way that if we didn't feel safe or we felt threatened in some way um not just physically but emotionally too then actually that that drives a particular style of behavior and i think so often our vulnerable children are get on the wrong side if you like of the um, you know, the, the behaviour within the school because people don't understand why they're doing what they're doing and therefore approach it. And it, I'm not saying behaviour shouldn't carry consequences at all, but if we're not getting to what the cause of the behaviour is, just sanctioning it is never going to make it better. You know, one of the examples I often use in training is if I came in from work one day, I work mostly at home, I do work outside, and I, I sort of slammed the door and dumped my bag down. If my husband said to me, could you go out and come in again? Because that's not the way we enter the room. I mean, there'd be murder, wouldn't there? Because <laughs> you know? what I want him to say is, 
are you okay? What on earth's happened? And, you know, I feel that if that was happening with other staff in the school, we'd probably give them that degree of respect. But actually, when it comes to young people, sometimes the most needy of young people who are experiencing goodness knows what outside of school, what we say is, don't do that, stop that, you can't do that, Let that's a detention, that's a this, and instead of saying, gosh, what's going on? Are you okay? It takes just the same amount of time to say, but so often the reaction would be very different. But of course, we have to remember that some adults in the schools feel quite threatened by certain behaviours. And of course, children will pick that up and then you get this quite horrendous, vicious cycle going on where everyone's becoming more dysregulated, where what we need is calm adults who understand that sometimes that behaviour isn't being channeled to them. It's because of what the child is feeling emotionally. Yeah, so it's actually asking the same question, but it's framed in positive language. Very different way, absolutely right, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's not, I suppose it's not focusing on the behaviour, it's focusing on what's underneath that behaviour, what's causing that behaviour. And I think, sadly, in a lot of schools, you know, a lot of their behaviour policies are all about trying to stamp out, as it were, the, the difficult behaviours, rather than look at what is the need underneath, you know, because for some students, the need is attachment. Yeah, they might be creating quite a lot of low level with disruption within their classrooms because they want that adult's attachment. And if the adult can see that, then actually they can give them that at the beginning of the lesson. They can keep going back, they can keep kind of checking in with their eye contact and probably reduce some of those behaviours. Absolutely. We also have a culture, I think, in education, which has become um, more and more developed over the past 12 years or so, which is about this idea of sameness and consistency, which is then seen as being fair for every everyone. Um, but not everyone has the same story. Not everyone has the same experience to start their day. Um, and so applying the principle of sameness um, isn't, isn't going to work, I don't think. And I think, you know, following on from that, I think context always counts. Mm -hmm. I remember working with a young carer, actually, who was excluded from school because he was literally supporting his mother and he would get his younger sibling kind of dressed and off to school and one day arrived at school late and with trainers and the welcome in inverted commas that he got was what are you doing you're late and here's the trainers. he just turned around and walked out and actually what he needed was someone saying gosh are you okay you know you're late has anything happened and then they could have had the discussion around the trainers but actually they lost him they actually lost him for weeks to go back to school um, it, it, and it's about our approach, isn't it? I think you're right. I think we need consistency, but I think we need consistency with kind of flexibility. And what worries me about some of these very, if you like, strict behaviour policies is it robs the teachers and the, and the adults of their professionalism. Because often they know the student, they know the student that maybe would normally straight away get down to work, but actually they're just sitting quite disengaged. And, and, and they would you know, we rob them sometimes of the chance to handle them in an appropriate way, I suppose. If they say every time this happens, this has to follow, because like you say, saying this doesn't work, not everyone's the same, it's kind of never going to work. And, you know, in terms of that, I think sometimes we do look for fairness, but actually what we know from those wonderful little diagrams we can get about sort of equality and equity, some people need more support to be at the same level. And we never seem to have a problem with reasonable adjustments in uh, kind of academic ways but we seem to have a huge, huge problem with reasonable adjustments when it comes to behavior but that you know regulating your emotions and managing behavior are just skills that need to be learned and sadly there's a lot of young people in our schools that haven't had enough of the right kinds of adult um, attachments to be able to manage that. Yeah 
I was listening um, to a podcast yesterday, uh, which was Brenny Brown talking to Viola Davis about her book. And she recalled, Viola Davis recalled, uh, recalled a day when she was 14. And uh, she obviously grew up in a hugely dysfunctional household um, with incredible violence um, between her parents, her dad, especially towards her mum. And uh, they were treated, the children were treated violently as well. But she 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 describes a night where she thought her dad, her, her mum and dad were fighting all night. And she thought her dad was going to kill her mother. And when she went into school the next day, it was a school trip. And she'd been looking forward to it for a really long time. And she, she showed all the, um, the signs of being in trauma. All the signs, and she didn't want to go on the trip, and um, she was disconnected. She was silent. She wasn't engaging with anyone. But a teacher reached out to her and sort of said, "You know what's going on? What's going on?" And um, I'd like to think that's that's what we do for our children, rather than saying, "You in school? There's a trip. Go." Um, and. And it is just that little reach out that can change it. You know, there's a great quote by Karen Treisman that says, every interaction can be an intervention. You know, it's that simply saying, instead of there's the bus, get on and put three minutes, it's like, what's going on with you? You know, it, it's just that different approach which can change the outcome um, for so many of our, our children. And, and yes, schools need to be focused on learning, obviously, but children don't learn when they don't feel safe. You know, that's the thing she wouldn't be in a place to learn unless she had quite a lot of TLC for want of a word, Completely. Yes. Balance and regroup and yeah. Yeah. And that whole thing around belonging, the opposite of belonging is when you make someone feel shamed or feel like they're not there. And then that leads to attention. And I always kind of see that tension as an elastic band. So you can take a little bit of stretch, but over time that stretch gets tighter and tighter and tighter until it fractures completely and that's when you end up with the explosion yes. and it could be the, uh, the the pupil you just told us about who yeah. had been taking care of his mum and siblings it was it was the last yeah. thing and it just led to him feeling like I don't belong yes exactly and if we can't talk if we can't say that we want our pupils to belong if we don't mean we're truly inclusive, which means we accept them, we accept everyone for exactly who they are, no matter what their story is. Yes. Um, one of the other things that I think has kind of pushed me in, in a lot of ways in my life is um, I have a sister with quite profound um, learning disability. She actually received, she's, she's 76 at the moment. Um, and she just didn't have a day of education in her life simply because she didn't fit into a category. She's blind, so she could, but she couldn't access any blind in inverted, you know, provision that catered for, for, for visually restricted students. And she's also got quite significant learning disabilities, and a lot of those couldn't cope with her blindness. So because, she, and it's just that, you know, we have such a long way to go, I believe, with inclusion. You know, there should be, and, and sadly, I'd like to think that now education for some of our most um, significantly, you know, disabled uh, young people was brilliant, but I know it's not. I know there are still times when often they're out of school. Gosh, you know, if you come from a position where everybody has value, 
and actually we need to be making education services um, that can organisations need to be encompassing um, of everybody really and it just saddens me greatly because I don't think society is resourced such a number of years ago but I know that's been quite a, a driving force for me that whatever a person's situation should be entitled to a full and uh, they should be able to thrive within education yeah absolutely so you run uh, attuned education cool name I do, I do, which of course was linked to uh, attachment. At the moment, um, I'm actually thinking whether I'll continue that because I do most of my work by freelance, really, not so much by my own company. Mm. Um, but yes, uh, that is as it is at the moment. So, t- so tell us about the work that you do in schools. So that if, if someone was looking for yeah. support, what kinds of things do you enjoy supporting schools with? I suppose there's kind of three separate areas. So the first is very much around supporting our most vulnerable pupils and students. So that can take the form of training, but also kind of consulting with schools if there are particular issues, um, whether that's uh, face-to-face or sometimes it's both, you know, it can be a package of training and then some sort of consulting afterwards. And um, so around that whole agenda of sort of managing behavior, trauma, attachment, um, emotion coaching, all of those, how to help students regulate, all that kind of agenda. Then I also do, I feel very passionate. My, my beginning is nursing about well-being and what I see when I look at some teachers, that actually it takes a terrible toll on their health. Mm-hmm. And I uh, run sessions, um, I think I posted on Twitter just the other day, some feedback I've got from the session um, for teachers or for school staff, rather than teachers school staff, because I, I, I feel quite, um, yeah, I think well-being is something that, you know, is tremendously important for each of us in, individually. But working within a school, you can never support the well-being and mental health of young people if yourself, you're struggling. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not how, it's that whole business of filling your cup before you can kind of support other people. Um, so I do quite a lot of work around around that as well with groups of staff. And um, I also do uh, work around phonics. Uh, when I was working in the virtual school, well, actually earlier, when I was working at the Further Education College, I suddenly discovered it. And I genuinely didn't know that lots of our students leave school after, 16, after being at school for 10 years when they're 16 and they can't read or they can manage the headlines. So I did quite a lot of extra training around how we can support young people who don't manage to read to learn to read. And I think the problem is there's not many people in settings, even secondary schools, let alone further education colleges, who are actually have the skills and the knowledge to actually take a person from a non-reader to a reader. Lots of support, they'll sit and help, they'll do the very best they can, but it's often, frankly, not good enough because they haven't got the expertise to do it. So I do a lot of training. I do training with a company called Soundrite um, around phonics, but I also do my own uh, phonics for functional skills, which is very more, much more based on older students, um, college students or secondary schools. Because I feel like um, they shouldn't be missing out. It, yeah. You know, it is not rocket science. We have the science. We know how to get people reading, whether they're ESOL students or students that have just gone through the education system and not quite managed it for whatever reason. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of the three broad areas. But, you know, I'm always open to the discussions about other things, really. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, we'll include a link to your website and your contact Brilliant. details in the blurb with this podcast anyway, because we want people to find you and do. I'm sure that you would be a tremendous asset to, to anywhere because everyone is struggling. Um, and, of course, you know, this weekend, everybody's been talking about Ofsted. Um, oh, I know. And uh, we're not taking care of our workforce. 
And if we're not taking care of our workforce, as I, I saw an amazing banner on the march last week, which it said, which said, how can we put our children first if we put our staff last? Absolutely. And that's very much my thing on wellbeing. We need to be supporting staff and looking after them and showing they're doing what they can to support their own wellbeing, because that's the only way we'll be able to support the wellbeing and the mental health of the, of, of the young people that we work with. And actually, I think there's a bit of a crisis, isn't there, amongst young people? They've had some terribly tough years and a lot are suffering from lots of anxiety, aren't they, at the moment, as well as other things, you know, and they need a strong workforce, so therefore they need to be really valued, don't they? I think the children are letting us or are reminding us that when you don't have human connection, mm. whether it's a pandemic pandemic yes. or anything else, it impacts on your emotional well-being. And yes. so, especially for teenagers, yes. you know, they don't want their parents. <laughs> what really matters is yes. that daily contact with their mates and the fact that they were so isolated from their mates has had has really impacted on the huge that's what we're seeing yes i think you're absolutely right it has has. i think we are absolutely wired for connection you know we look at tom hanks in castaway he drew a face on a ball you know there's been lots of research that show babies will attend to anything that really looks looks more like a face than than not um you know we are wired as human beings like you say for that social connection and and we miss it and yes some people might need wide circles of friends might be some people just might need a couple but the fact is we all need other people we absolutely do so amazing work and uh is there one thing that's going especially well at the moment that you'd like us to celebrate um i suppose getting interest from further education places about phonics because i do believe we have a lot of work to do in terms of supporting you know there's such links between and, and people often think oh, it's quite diverse but actually if i look at looked after children they are often struggling some of our most vulnerable students you know whether they are looked after or not quite looked after or having lots of difficulties and are often the ones who who also struggle with things like reading and we know that there is a, a, and they're also liable to be excluded there's kind of this pathway that sets up you know um where and we know often it can end up in in custodial situations and you know I just feel very sad when I read the statistics about um, people that are you know in cycles I'm sure a huge number have attachment and trauma issues and a huge number have yeah. we'll have both yeah and I don't suppose there's any coincidence the tabloids are written for the average reading age of an eight-year-old because that's what the average reading age is like him and it just country. doesn't I think of the number of things that would be hard if I couldn't read well, it just adds a level of difficulty and capacity to life. But quite apart from it, it comes full circle back to shame. People feel ashamed that they can't read. Yeah. Um, and, and it must be awful being a parent where you can't read a story to your child or help them with that because of your own readings. Yeah, but also even now accessing the most basic services. On yes. the one hand, it's convenient because everything's online. Uh, but whereas before you could go and have a face-to-face -face interview yeah. and someone could talk to you and could record what was going on, if you're now on your own trying to access a service, the only way you can do it is by reading and completing a form. So yeah, it's... Often there aren't even telephone calls. You can't even ring someone up, can you? It has to be online, which is so, you know, we are just... Um, is that we're kind of excluding um, by that a lot of people and they won't get the help they need. A lot of people are 
because it does involve being involved, you know? Yeah. But usually quite lengthy and they're not always written in very reader-friendly formats, are they? Sometimes I'll think, oh my goodness, how would people ma manage this, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, Sheila, I want to say thank you so much. I just think that you're amazing and I hope that people connect with you and congratulations that the work you're doing around phonics is um, really growing and that more and more people are connecting you and I hope that continues to happen for you. Um, but I want to say thank you uh, for being a Flying High guest and for reminding us that the importance of taking care of our pupils uh, who are vulnerable, who are in care, um, who are um, in need of just us taking a pause and noticing them and helping them to feel like they belong and are welcome in our schools. Um, and uh, I hope that people continue to connect with you and capitalise on the incredible work that you're doing. And I also want to say thanks to our listeners for joining us. And please do go on to the uh, Wednesday Women's Forum on the Above and Beyond Education app to share your good news stories. This is us reclaiming our right to celebrate all the things go on in our schools and in our education communities. Thank you so much, Sheila. Thank you very much, Alison. Lovely to chat. Thank you. If you work in education and you'd like to take part in an episode of the Flying High podcast, simply contact me. I'd love to hear from you and we welcome diversity in voices. Thanks to all our Flying High guests and to the education community for working together to make every school a great school. Take good care of you.